Now, the story is told of a small town courtroom that had a trial with uh, a criminal trial. And uh, the prosecuting attorney called his first witness to the stand, and she was an elderly lady, a grandmother. And uh, he started asking her some questions to establish her credibility and let the jury know who she was. And one of the questions that he asked her was, Mrs. Jones, do you know who I am? And, and this was her response. She said, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, and you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. Yes, I know you. Of course, the attorney was stunned when his witness just besmirched his character, and so the only thing that he could think to do was say, well, do you know the defense attorney sitting over there? <laughs> and she said, why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. I used to babysit him for his parents, and he, too, has been a real disappointment to me. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. The man can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. Yeah, I know him too. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, the courtroom was in hysterics, laughing at what this woman was saying, and so the, court call, uh, the judge called the court to order, and he called both of the attorneys up to the bench, and he whispered to them very sternly, if either of you asks her if she knows me, I'll have you jailed for contempt. <laughs> um, I've, always, I've always found that story funny. <laughs> I mean, no one, no one really likes to have their ugliness exposed, right? No one really likes to have what is kind of deep down within us brought to the surface. And today, as we continue our sermon series on the Holy Spirit, we're going to learn how the Holy Spirit is a little bit like that grandmother. How the Holy Spirit is trying to illuminate some of that ugliness so that we can compare it to God's grace. And we can appeal to that grace. And so we're going to be in John chapter 16, and we're going to study verses 7 through 11 of the Gospel of John, chapter 16. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your truth. I thank you that we can study it and we can be comforted by it, but that we can also be convicted by it and transformed by it. And Father, I asked that that is exactly what would happen right now, Lord, that you would illuminate your truth to us. Father, I ask that you would speak through me, you would fill me with your spirit, that my words would be yours and that you would pierce our hearts with whatever you would have us respond to. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Now, before we dive into this passage, I just want to make sure that we understand the context. Jesus has been talking to his disciples for several chapters now in the upper room. This is right after the Last Supper. This is his last time with his disciples before he's about to be crucified. And so he's giving them some crucial last words before he goes and prays and then ultimately is crucified. 
And one of the things that he has been telling his disciples, one of the themes that he has been developing is that, look guys, when I leave, it's gonna get tough. You're gonna face some difficult times. You're gonna face some trials and tribulations. But don't worry, I've got your back. And he begins to reassure them. And one of the things that he reassures them with is the fact that they are going to be receiving the Holy Spirit. And so that's where we pick up our text right here in John chapter 16, verse 7. And Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, despite the fact that Jesus was about to die on the cross, and we all know that he overcame sin and death and rose again, and, and then he was going to ascend to heaven, despite all that, Jesus was reassuring his disciples and saying, it's better that I go so that you can receive the Holy Spirit, the helper. And the Greek word here is, is actually two words. For another helper, it means one of the exact same kind. That's the first word. And the second word is who comes alongside to help, who walks with you through any trial or tribulation you may be facing. That is the helper that the Lord is sending. And oh, by the way, while Jesus is with them temporarily, this new helper who's exactly like Jesus, he's going to be with you forever. And of course, that's the Holy Spirit. That's who we have been studying throughout this series. And we've been learning all of the amazing advantages that we have because of the Holy Spirit, how he seals us and how he indwells us and leads us and empowers us and he gives us gifts and, and all in these amazing things. But interestingly, at least to me it's interesting, Christ doesn't highlight any of those things in this passage. As soon as he tells them, look, it's better that I go, you're going to have a helper who's just like me, who's going to be with you forever, and he tells them that he is going to have a ministry of conviction. That's the first thing that Christ highlights here. And he says that he is going to convict the entire world, Christians and non-Christians, of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so we are going to take each of these three things in turn, and we are going to begin with the Spirit's work of conviction of our sin. Verse 9 says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The convicting work of the Spirit always begins with sin. It always begins with pointing out how we have rebelled against God. Romans 2.15 says, the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. 
So we have a conscience and we have an understanding of good and evil. That is all in operation in our lives. And yet, that conscience, that understanding of good and evil, that can be twisted. That can be seared, Scripture says. And that can happen because of the culture that we live in. It can happen because of how we've grown up. It can happen because of different choices that we've made to ignore our conscience. And so God has also allowed the Holy Spirit to have a work of conviction which happens after the fact. Conviction is referring to the Lord's showing us our guilt. It is illuminating, it is bringing to light what we stand guilty of. And it was used all the time in trials. That was how this Greek word was used primarily. And, and so our conscience is working beforehand, but the Spirit is convicting us after the fact. And He's going to come along, and He is going to show us what we have done wrong. Earlier this week, my, my wife took my kids to the swimming pool and uh, took them to my parents' house, and they were enjoying one of the beautiful days that we just had. And they were all kind of just, just having fun in the water. And then all of a sudden, my mom kind of yelled out, what is that brown thing floating in the water? <laughs> well, after their little Caddyshack moment where they were all kind of freaking out, um, my oldest son said, oh, it's a hamburger. There's a hamburger floating in the water. Now, my, my family has very strict rules that there is to be no food around the pool, no food around the pool. And so immediately, my three sons, they started pointing the finger at each other. It was Matthew, it was Jackson, it was Connor, no, it wasn't me, and they started fighting and arguing, and all of my kids, they denied that it, they were the one who had uh, just, you know, put the floater in the pool, right? And, and so this kind of went on the rest of the day. Who put the hamburger in the pool? Well, the next morning when we were doing our family devotions, the, the, the hamburger came up again, and they started accusing each other once more, and it was in the midst of all of this arguing with my boys that my precious innocent little girl kind of walked quietly over to my wife and she said, Mama, it was me. I put the hamburger in the pool. <laughs> oh, See, she would never describe it this way, but the Spirit was working on her heart to convict her of her sin which really wasn't actually putting the hamburger in the pool. Apparently, the dogs came after her, and she got scared and threw the hamburger, which is how it got in the pool. But then she lied about it afterwards. There's the sin. And she continued to deny it until that point when the Spirit moved her to confess her sin. That is how conviction works. It works after the fact to help us to see what we are guilty of, to illuminate to us what we are guilty of. 
But there's something that's really important that I want us to see here in this passage. The Spirit isn't merely concerned with convicting us of sin generally. I mean, that, that's certainly one of the functions that he plays. But there is one sin in particular that he will constantly seek to illuminate within us and show us, and that is the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ. Notice that the text says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. A little earlier in the conversation in the upper room in in John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit is constantly pointing us to Jesus, constantly pointing us to the Messiah. I mean, there's a reason why the Spirit is the unsung hero of the Trinity, because he wants it that way. (laughs) He wants the spotlight to be on Jesus Christ and what he has done, the work that he has done, God's grace through Christ. Now, it's important that we understand how the Spirit operates and who he is, But then the Spirit's like, okay, great, enough about me, let's get back to Jesus. That's what he is always, always doing. And this is what he does with our sin as well. He wants to show us that our sin at its heart is about unbelief. And and that's, that's something that's difficult for people to accept. I mean, they're incredulous when they hear that not believing in Jesus is itself a sin. You mean to tell me that I can live a really good life, but if I don't believe in Jesus, I've sinned? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what the Word of God says. That's what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, and the primary sin that he will convict of, the greatest sin of all, The only unforgivable sin, which he calls, Jesus calls in Matthew 12, 31, the blasphemy of the Spirit, is not believing in Jesus Christ and disregarding what the Holy Spirit witnesses to the world about him. If we reject Christ as the Son of God, if we reject that Christ lived a perfect life, and died an atoning death so that we may have forgiveness of sin when we put our faith in him, if we reject that, then, frankly, nothing else really matters. I can can repent of every other sin in my life, but if I don't repent of my unbelief, well, I'm in trouble. You know, and this is important for us, too. As, as the body of Christ, we need to keep this in mind because we can trumpet from the rooftops that abortion is wrong and homosexuality is wrong and racism is wrong and any other sin that we want to focus on and say that it's wrong and, and, and go 
be strong activists for and, and post little Facebook messages about. That stuff's fine. But if we're not trumpeting, you need Jesus, your unbelief is the issue. Then babies are going to start to scream about it, all right? We need to recognize that the conviction of the Spirit for the sin in our lives, whatever that sin is, will always be calculated to bring us to the realization of our unbelief, of our lack of submission to the Lord. Any atheist or Hindu or Muslim or Jehovah's Witness or any other false religion out there can acknowledge their wrongdoing. But if it doesn't lead to conviction and repentance for their unbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that acknowledgement of wrongdoing doesn't matter. It's worthless. And, and oh, by the way, Christian sitting here listening to me, the reality is that those sins that we struggle with, those things that we continually fall into, those are indicators of our unbelief as well. Those are indicators of our lack of submission to our Lord and Master. That's due to unbelief. Really what it comes down to, our prideful selves rejecting Christ's Lordship because, well, we believe that our way is better than his way. We've got to lay aside our pride and selfishness and sinful desires, and we need to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit on our souls, calling us to faithful submission to our God. We can't be apathetic about this any longer. One of my favorite books is Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. He has a bunch of really great quotes in there. But there's one in particular that C.S. Lewis writes while he's pretending to be the devil. And he says, I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, one of, like, his, in the book it's his nephew, a demon. Your job, dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people who do not care. We can't not care about our sin. We can't not care about our unbelief. We have to awaken to what the Spirit is illuminating within us so that we can respond to God's grace with repentance. And that brings us to the second thing that the Holy Spirit will convict us of, and that is of righteousness. He will convict us of righteousness. Verse 10 says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Righteousness here refers to our standing before God. And what the Spirit convicts us of, really, is our lack of righteousness, 
our inability to stand before God and proclaim that we are holy and we merit His favor and His blessing. The Spirit will work on our hearts and show us our sin, and because of our sin, He will remind us that, oh, by the way, because of your sin, because of your unbelief, you have no righteousness of your own. There is nothing within you that merits you standing before the holy God of the universe. R.C. Sproul tells a story of a well-known professional golfer who was in a little um, a round of golf with the former president, Gerald Ford, with uh, fellow golf pro Jack Nicklaus, and with Billy Graham, the evangelist Billy Graham. And he went through the round of golf with these other men, and one of his buddies came up and asked him, what, what was it like to, to play golf with the president and with Billy Graham? And this golf pro didn't really say anything about the president, but he was angry. He was angry. He said, I can't believe Billy Graham. He said, I don't need him stuffing religion down my throat for 18 holes of golf. And he kind of walked away disgusted and angry and took a bucket of balls to the driving range to get out some of his, some of his frustration. And his buddy followed him and hit golf balls with him. And then he, he asked him again, he said, was, was Billy that hard on you? Was he really condemning and judgmental and really kind of preaching hell, fire and brimstone? And the golf pro looked up at him and he said, no. He didn't mention God one time. He didn't mention the name of Jesus a single time. I just felt it coming off him. See, the pro was upset because just by being with a godly man, he realized his inadequacy before the Lord. He was convicted of his sin and of his unrighteousness. And that's what the Spirit does. He shows us that we can't do it on our own. But not only does He show us that we are unrighteous, more than that, He wants us to see who is righteous. That's why Christ added here in verse 10, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. You ever wonder why Jesus said that? Well, it's because when He goes to the Father... And the fact that you will see him no longer means that he was acceptable to God. He was worthy to stand in the presence of the holy and spotless God of the universe. He is righteous. So not only does the Spirit show us that we are unrighteous, but the Spirit brings conviction to our unbelief through our sin, showing us that Jesus Christ was righteous, and that he alone is the way to salvation. See, God, God knows, he knows that we are sinful, messed up people. I mean, raise your hand if you're a messed up person. 
I'm going to raise two, all right? See some feet going up there. That's, yeah, we're messed up people. God knows that. God knows that we can't save ourselves, and that is why he saved us, by sending his perfect and righteous son to die on the cross for our sins and atoning death and not just dying, but overcoming sin and death and rising again to life so that we who trust in him, we who put our faith in him, would be forgiven of our sin and we would receive Christ's righteousness. And we can confidently say that because I am in Christ, I have been set free and forgiven and I am welcome to stand before the throne of God. That is the gospel. That's it right there. Paul knew this. Paul proclaimed this in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, the normal, the normal, the normal way that we typically establish our righteousness is I look at that guy over there and I say, oh, I'm way better than him. Or a lot of people look at me and say, wow, I'm way better than him. Or they'll compare themselves to the standards that society sets. Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. Or what public opinion is. We always want to relativize righteousness to people that we can kind of one-up. That's what the world does. And Jesus doesn't have any of that. He says, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit will convict men of the ultimate standard of righteousness, which is me. I, Jesus Christ, am the ultimate standard of righteousness. It's not this relativistic thinking in the world. I alone am the standard of God's righteousness, and I will give it to you because of how much I love you, because my grace wants to pour it out on you. F.B. Meyer put it this way, we are constantly meeting people who are perfectly indifferent to Christianity because they say they do not feel their need of it. Why should they trouble about it when they suppose themselves able to do perfectly well without it? In dealing with these, it is a great mistake to entice them towards the gospel by describing the moral grandeur of Christ's character and teaching. We should at once seek to arouse them to a sense of their great sinfulness. And that's what the Spirit is doing within us. We are all, we're all sin-riddled, flesh-filled jars of clay. That's what we are. 
And unless we repent of our unbelief and turn to Christ to be our righteousness, we're going to face the coming judgment and we're going to be found wanting. We'll be measured and weighed and found wanting. And that's the final thing that this passage tells us the Spirit will convict the world of. And that's the judgment that is to come. Spurgeon said, the fashionable theology of the day is convince men of the goodness of God, show them the universal fatherhood, and assure them of unlimited mercy. Win them by God's love, but never mention his wrath against sin or the need of an atonement or the possibility of there being a place of punishment. Do not censure poor creatures for their failings. Do not judge and condemn. Do not search the heart or lead men to be low-spirited and sorrowful. Comfort and encourage, but never accuse and threaten. I hope you can hear the sarcasm in Spurgeon's voice here. That is what they were tickling people's ears with hundreds of years ago. And it hasn't changed a bit. In fact, more and more churches want to just tickle the ears of their congregations and fill the seats with people who don't want to be told about God's righteous requirements for his people and what he expects of his holy sons and daughters who are to point the world to him. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we're sinners, which makes us unrighteous, which means that apart from Christ, we're going to hell. And the Spirit will convict us of that reality. Our passage concludes in verse 11 by saying that the Spirit will convict concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit wants us to see that the consequence of sin and the consequence of unbelief and the consequence of unrighteousness is death. Eternal death. And all who remain under the worldly ways of thinking apart from Christ, they will be eternally damned. Now listen, this, this isn't some scare tactic that Jesus is trying to pull here. He's, he's not trying to, to point the finger at the world and say, you're all going to hell. Oh, he is lovingly, graciously sending the helper so that we can be warned of the path that we are on. This is an act of God's grace that he makes us aware that we are dead in our sin until we turn to Jesus Christ. 
He's, he's, he's proclaiming to us, the bridge is out up ahead. There's, there's poison in the food. Don't eat it. There is death through those doors. Don't continue on that path. Don't keep believing those lies that the world is trying to tell you are true. It's deception. It's false, and it leads to death. Don't persist on that path. That's, that's God's grace calling out to us, warning us of what is to come. And Jesus said, look, if you're not convinced of my love for you, if you're not convinced of my gracious warning to you, and you want to continue to listen to the lies of this world, well, then look what's going to happen to the prince of this world. Look at what has already happened to the ruler of this world. He has already been defeated. He's already been cast down to earth along with all of his rebel angels, and I am dealing him a mortal blow at the cross because death cannot hold me. I am going to overcome sin so that you can proclaim, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, and the one who is in the world is already standing condemned. And in those final days when Christ returns, Satan and his demons are going to be cast into that burning lake of fire. But all those who have persisted in believing the demon's lies are going to follow him right into the fire. Again, that's not meant to scare. That is meant to convict us, to show us God's grace and his mercy in this. He wants you to make the choice to follow him. And that's what we've got to do. I mean, we can, we can sit here and we can listen to all of this theology, but at the end of the day, we need to ask ourselves, what am I going to do about this? Because the reality is, Jesus said in John 3.19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. We've got we've to ask ourselves, what do I love? What am I allowing my heart to go after? And it starts by looking within ourselves and being honest about what I am holding on to and being able to let it go. We can't, we can't be content to be apathetic any longer. We have to feel the conviction of the Spirit on our hearts and our minds and our souls. We need to get out of the driver's seat and let Jesus be in control. We've got to do, do whatever it takes, whatever that thing that you have been struggling 
with, whatever you have been holding on to, whatever you are refusing to let go, do whatever it takes to, to get rid of it. Confess it to someone. Help them to hold you accountable in that area of sin. Get rid of the objects of temptation in your lives. Break off the relationship that is causing you to stumble. Get rid of the lies that the devil is trying to pollute your mind with, getting you to fall into depression, getting you to fall into deception, getting you to fall into disbelief and doubt. Let the Spirit move in you and yield to that. Recognize how the standards of this world twist our perspective and the goals of this world, they pollute what we should be driving for. Don't go after the American dream. That's, that's garbage. It's a lie. Go after what God is calling you to. We need to repent what the Lord is welling up within us and submit to our loving and gracious Savior who wants to save us from that destructive path. And if you're here and you've heard this message and you are sitting and you are not a believer of Jesus Christ, if you have not accepted that free gift of grace, well then, there's a reason why God has you here listening to this message. It's just one more example of his grace because he wants you to hear how much he loves you. He wants you to hear that there is nothing that you have done that he can't forgive you of if you would just submit to his son, Jesus and the sacrifice that he made on that cross for you. Your sins can be washed away by the blood of Jesus, and you can be made righteous by him. Just, it requires humility. It requires letting go what you've been holding on to. Nothing that you think that you want to keep doing, no lifestyle that you want to keep living is worth hell. Don't be so focused <laughs> on what's going on here and now. Recognize eternity and that God wants you to spend it with him. We've got to submit to our God. We've got to look within and submit. But after we do that, after we submit, well, secondly, we've got to now go out and proclaim what Jesus Christ has done for us to the world. We can't sit on our rear ends and be content that I'm saved. Well, now I've got to go and tell the world about it. Now I've got to go and proclaim that I have been saved and set free by Jesus Christ, and you can too. God's grace is sufficient for you as well. I have been transformed. I have been forgiven. And now I want you to hear what Jesus has done for me. And you know what? I gotta be honest. 
I don't think I do this very well, and I don't think, I don't think we do this very well. I mean, how often are we intentionally developing a relationship with someone who we know does not call Christ their Lord and Savior so that I can boldly proclaim what Jesus has done for me? We've got to be doing that. That's what Christ is calling us to, that we would testify to how we have been saved. That is how we overcome the world. By the blood of the lamb and by the picketing on the corner? No. It's by the power of our testimony, by what Jesus has done for us, by proclaiming that I am a sinner and yet I have been set free of the slavery of sin by Jesus Christ. We cannot be like the judge at the beginning of our sermon that we just heard and and become so scared of our ugliness being revealed that we put a gag order on sharing. We need to repent of our sin and then we need to proclaim what we have been saved from because there is power in forgiveness and there is power in transformation. Listen, I was a fornicator, an idolater, a pitiful husband and a father, full of my own pride and self-sufficiency, and prone to get really angry when I didn't get my way. That was Matthew Millen. And I would be a liar on that list as well if I didn't tell you that I still struggle with some of those things. I'm not a perfect man. But by God's grace and through the death and resurrection of my Lord and Savior, that does not define who I am. I am a saved son of God who is being transformed daily into who Christ wants me to be so that I can faithfully serve him wherever he calls me. That is the power of transformation. That is the power of the gospel in my life. And I pray, I pray that by God's grace, I never quench the conviction of the Spirit in my life as he continues to transform me. And it's my prayer today that none of us, none of us will ever quench the conviction of the Spirit in our lives either. Amen?